Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is AquaThread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and often underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia. In each episode, I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts, mostly in their early career. This episode, I have Dr. Amari Walker-Franklin, research chemist at RTI with me. If you've listened to our other episodes, this one's going to be formatted a little differently. Amari and I don't have an outside guest today because we're going to talk about our book, Plastics, from MIT Press that is going to be released on August 22nd, 2023. So I hope you're doing well today, Amari. I'm really excited we get to talk about the book today. You invited me to join you on this journey. Um, So tell us sort of the behind the scenes story on how this book came about. Yeah, and it's, it's great to be here, Jenna. So we're going to we're going to take it back all the way to right when the pandemic shut everybody down in 2020. And I think for a lot of us, when we were in forced isolation, like the whole country, um, we had to experience a moment of stillness. And I think I needed that in my PhD because, you know, things move a lot. But having that moment to really recollect and have that stillness made me think about my PhD research on the impact of microplastics Mm. and plastic additives in the environment. And I realized in that moment that the research that I was doing was so important for general audiences, like my mom, my friends, and people that don't really have science backgrounds to learn about plastic pollution, because we're interacting with plastic daily. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's when I started the YouTube channel initially to create funny and engaging content to talk about ways that we could address the plastic pollution crisis. And with that, you know, it made me to, you know, led me to be more engaged in Twitter and other social media platforms so that I could not only amplify the work on YouTube, but also start sharing new scientific articles and work being done in the field and just uh, new activism that, that's occurring. And so as the videos and social media started growing, I was reached out to by a few people to have opportunities to serve on panels, um, to talk on additional webinars, and then even on other amazing podcasts like this one, Off the Thread. And eventually, um, some of those opportunities led to an editor for the MIT Press to reach out to me and see if I was interested in writing a book. Now, he was the He's the editor for the Essential Knowledge series for MIT. And the Essential Knowledge series is a small, you know, it's a series of small books that's meant to synthesize complex subjects for non-specialists and general audiences in accessible and engaging ways. And he mentioned that he liked, you know, the style of science communication I had with my videos, like the 10 facts you need to know about microplastics. Um, And uh, really thought it would be a pretty easy transition to go from video making to book writing, um, which it is, it was an interesting experience. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he also mentioned that there's been an increased demand for a book like this on plastics for general audiences to be able to understand these complex topics and understand what, how, you know, what actions can we take? Why are we in the positions that we are in right now? how plastic can be problematic and and things that we can do for the future. So 
Um, I was really honored by the invitation. And of course I said, yes, which is why we're here today. Mm-hmm. Um, having no clue what I was getting myself into for writing a book, but I was really excited for this new opportunity of growth and getting the information out in a new way. So as we got started, the editor mentioned that in order to write a book with MIT Press, you have to submit a book proposal. And in order to have the strongest proposal um, that would get approved, it would be smart to include a co-author to write the book. Because um, as you know, I was you know in the middle of, of my career and I'm still starting my science career. Right. And so it'd be really great to have someone who's been well-established in the field um, to help support this and, and write this. And that's when I immediately thought of you, Jenna, as a co-author, because I had really almost admired all the amazing science that you're doing. I was really impressed with your work as a National Geographic Explorer and the ways that you've interacted with other scientists, and policymakers, and just internationally with other community members. And so I thought that our wheelhouse of knowledge really complemented each other in the plastic pollution space. And it just was a, a, a you know slam dunk that we are both environmental engineers. So I was like, yes. Uh, so even though we had never formally met, you know, we had only interacted on social media. I sent you a Twitter DM asking if you were interested in writing a book. And I am so lucky that you said yes. <laughs> Well, I felt lucky to get that DM and to have you invite me. Um, I certainly had admired your science communication skills on YouTube, on social media um, as well, and was just excited for you as what are now a star, but a rising star in environmental engineering. And so uh, I think you're you're right. It's It's been a great, a great fit. Um, so this book really covers kind of the whole life cycle of plastics uh, from the invention to production and use to to waste generation, environmental considerations and impacts, uh, human health and society, um, policy, and then finally, you know, what, what actions might be able to be taken. Um, but I think, and you touched on this, my favorite thing about this book is how accessible it is. You know, it's got a very, it's got a low price point under $17. It's, you know, small, can be carried, you know, easily. And, you know, if you, if you want to read it in an afternoon, that's really possible. And so it's kind of like this nice primer on the issue. And so right now I want to read a little excerpt uh, from the book. I want to start with the introduction to give everybody a little bit of a taste. Wherever you are right now, look around. Do you perhaps have the book in one hand and your phone made of various metals, plastics, and glass in the other? Are you possibly perched on a park bench made of recycled plastic bags or on your polyurethane mattress? Did you recently flip on a light switch to read this? We come into contact daily with many items made of plastics, such as your phone or parts of your phone, carpet, furniture, and light switches. Some plastic items might not be obvious, including multi-materials containing plastic. For example, your clothing might be a polyester blend or fleece, a disposable coffee cup is paper lined with polyethylene, and metallic-looking chips and snack bags are plastics with a very thin layer of aluminum. While plastic is still used as an adjective in soil science, it's now a noun that is most known as any of numerous organic, synthetic, or processed materials that are mostly thermoplastic or thermosetting polymers of high molecular weight that can be made into objects, films, or filaments. 
According to Google, the use of the word plastic correlates with the timeline of the history and development of the common material we use today. And there's a chart of this in the book. Uh, since it was discovered in the 1860s and brought to the public marketplace in the 1950s in numerous forms, plastic has become ubiquitous in our daily lives. Plastic, as the name of the material we now know, literally exploded into the marketplace when humans were looking for a replacement for natural materials like ivory. The feedstock for most plastics today is fossil fuels, oil, and gas, but the invention of plastics came from a raw plant material, cellulose. So see the full book for the literal explosive story, more on the invention of plastics and the development of the throwaway culture. Let me continue briefly. As the disposable culture for plastics grew, so did the concern over waste management. How would our waste management system handle a material it had never seen before? Even the industry knew this might be an issue as they discussed it at meetings where the information never saw the light of day in those time periods. They placed the responsibility for leakage and cleanup squarely on the shoulders of cities and community members. To this day, we continue to try to play catch up with the problems that plastic pollution has caused. So what would you say you liked best about writing the book or, or what part is your favorite uh, chapter? Wow, well, we, I mean, I think even that intro is like, whew. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. Really jaw-dropping. But when thinking about my my favorite chapter for writing or even reading, I would say that when we started thinking about how to write this book, we had to map out what the chapters could look like, what the content could be in each one, and you know how to make this engaging as well to everyone. And so the first chapter for me um, was actually one of the more difficult ones to write because that was just proof in the pudding that we had to write something. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, we both ended up choosing chapters to write to submit to the editor so that they could see what our writing subject could look like and how we how we were doing with the book. And so we both chose chapters on subjects that were very near and dear to our hearts. And for me, that was chapter five on chemicals in and associated with plastics. And I think that's my favorite, uh, even though I think there are many really engaging chapters left in the book. Um, this, this chapter actually made me realize that I can write a book. Mm -hmm. So I'll share a short excerpt that still makes me giggle a little bit and, um, you know, that I just enjoy. Yep. So within chapter five, chemicals and plastic, we all know that combining butter, eggs, flour, vanilla extract, baking soda, salt, and chocolate chips creates a magical chocolate chip cookie. But did you know that a chocolate chip cookie is very similar to making plastic? Key ingredients added to a plastic make it look and taste. Yes, some organisms can taste differences in plastics. Different. Some common ingredients in plastic includes monomers, catalysts, lubricants, flame retardants, biocides, UV inhibitors, and antioxidants. The plastic building block, monomers, are like the flour, sugar, and egg that react and mold together with the heating processes. Flame-resistant chemicals are similar to baking powder. Surfactants are the kinds of butters and oils added to keep the polymer from sticking whilst, whilst, while making it. And plasticizers are like the water that could be added to a cookie to make the polymer more flexible and stretch out. 
Dyes and colorants are added to plastics to make a polymer aesthetically pleasing in the same way you would add chocolate chips or sprinkles to a cookie. And biocides are incorporated into a plastic to keep microbial organisms from growing on the surface of the plastic. Like how we add raisins to keep people from enjoying a perfect chocolate chip cookie. Love that so much. <laughs> That's how I knew when you we were working on this first chapter. I'm like, this is going to be great. Um, not sure I ever... Learn everyone that likes raisins. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. My husband does. Um, oh, no. Yeah. But I was going to ask you, what was your favorite thing about writing the book? Gosh, I mean, I think I think that section really illustrates, you know, why I really enjoyed the process of working with you. It was a much easier process than I envisioned. I I don't know that I thought it would be hard to work together, but I've tried to write a long form uh, project before, and I, to be honest, it didn't go well. Um, so, but that one was by myself. So I was really hopeful that working together with you would, you know, help inspire me, hold me accountable, which of course it definitely did. But what I found so awesome though is that I actually enjoyed this process of writing. Usually writing is really hard for me. And I think maybe people are surprised to hear that with how much writing I do. Um, but I would often I would maybe even say it's been painful in the past. So but we just really would have so many conversations about this topic. We talk about current events in the space, about, you know, popular culture and how that was related, news stories on plastics. And then you showed me how that could become a part of the book. And I think just your science communication skills in that in that space taught me a lot as well and made this process, you know, a lot more fun than I anticipated it would be. So one story that I think kind of stands out to me um, that I wanted to share is that, you know, we were constantly sort of seeing news stories. I mean, this this topic's in the news all the time, but I saw this news story on CPAP machines. So CPAP machines are what people put on at night when they have sleep apnea, which can stop their breathing. And so this helps keep them breathing at night. So the plastic foam padding was coming loose and people were inhaling this. Um, so they were being exposed to plastics um, through inhalation and the replacements and fixes to this issue were lagging behind. So they literally had to decide between sort of the immediate life preservation of wearing this device and the potential toxic exposure to plastics and the implications of that. I mean, that's not really a choice. And so from those notes and conversation, you were then able to intertwine that event and the story, you know, into the book. And I think, again, your ability to give examples that people can relate to is amazing. So I really like how in the book, and, you know, I learned from this and learned how to, I think, bring in some of those issues. We talk about things, you know, the life cycle of plastics scientifically, as people have heard from these ex excerpts, but also, you know, examples that people can relate to in their daily life. And this is across all the chapters. And I think these examples are really um, powerful for getting the the science communicated. And when I was just um, in Paris a couple of weeks ago for the side events before the the plastics treaty negotiations, um, I brought up the fact that I was really unsettled to learn that the contacts that I've worn 
for 38 years, not the same pair of contacts, mind you, but I've been a contact wearer for 38 years, contain PFAS or what we now know as uh, or we call forever chemicals um, because of their persistence in our world. And so I think that I had people comment to me afterwards that that really resonated with them to hear this example as well as the science I was discussing. And um, we do discuss more details on PFAS in, in another episode of the podcast uh, that had Madison and do knives as well. So what, what, what are your thoughts on incorporating all those examples? Yeah, and I, I think that's really interesting you brought up contacts because it, it is like two two sides for the issue. One is that contacts are polymers, right? We're putting polymers on our eyes and then these polymers have chemicals like mm-hmm. PFAS. And I think people will be really surprised to see how ubiquitous some of these chemicals are that usually have initial applications to plastics, but can now, you know, are now being incorporated into so many other kinds of consumer products. Mm -hmm. Like PFAS are being incorporated into medical products. They're being incorporated into different cosmetics. Um, And PFAS in particular, they're they're called per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. um, And they, they comprise a wide variety of different kinds of chemicals. But they're known as forever chemicals, and they're and they're getting a lot of media attention because of the new um, EPA regulations in drinking water and the new demand for more regulation on these chemicals. Because we now know that these chemicals are toxic and are harmful to the body, and they're predicting that almost 99% of all Americans have PFAS in their blood. Mm. So yeah. things to think about and be worried about. And one of the reasons why you know we're we had to bring that up even in the book as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think going back to the CPAP a- example, I think this would be a great moment to even share some of the excerpt, like a short paragraph from chapter seven, mm-hmm. Plastics Impact on Society. And so in this portion of the book, we're discussing the fact that microplastics, which are small pieces of plastic, are now in our air, they're in our food and beverages, to the point that we're now consuming, inhaling, Um, and just being exposed to microplastics every single day. And so some of the ramifications of consumption of microplastics are currently being explored by scientists by using things like rodent models and even observation. So depending on the size of of the plastic fragment consumed, some microplastics can migrate into the bloodstream and accumulate in different tissues. For example, Studies of pregnant rats that inhale microplastics have been found um, with plastic particles rapidly migrating from the lungs into the heart, brain, and portions of the fetus. Further confirmation of this phenomenon is observed in studies that have found microplastics in human blood, lung tissues, and the placenta. This is concerning because even smaller ranges, uh, size ranges of plastics, like nanoplastics, are also predicted to be able to enter human tissues and produce inflammation. A direct example of these risks can be seen in the sleep apnea machine's recall in 2021 due to the risk of causing asthma, lung irritation, or even cancer. And this recall in particular was due to the polyester polyurethane foam that that could degrade with use over time. Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about, how you tied that example in um, with the science discussion to really kind of illustrate what's going on there. 
So we talked about kind of what we like about the book and and what was easy. What did what did you find most challenging about writing this book? Oh man, so many challenges. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't know what it's like until you start writing a book. You're like, oh, we got to finish this thing. Um, <laughs> But it, I think that actually ties into to probably what the most challenging portion for me was to write, which was essentially the last chapter. Um, so the final chapter was based on um, giving people hope and showing people what alternatives and solutions look like to address this problem. Uh, and because we knew that we needed to end the, the book with a note of optimism and hope for the future, we spent a, quite a bit of time, you know, thinking about how to transition and pivot into that kind of writing for the book, because mm -hmm. we spent so much, so many more months working on what are the problems? What's the science behind making plastic? What's the science behind making the chemicals that you put in plastic? How, you know, where is it? How harmful is it? Mm -hmm. And so to think of, okay, well, what, how do we, how do we have better hope for the future? Mm -hmm. um, and pull myself out of that spiral um, was, was so, so difficult to kind of reframe my mind and think about, what are all the great things happening? And so it was really great to just kind of sit down and chat with you and and reframe some of some of the the conversations that we had to incorporate into that portion of the book. Um, and so I would say it was hard, but it was really fulfilling because I think that's probably one of the most important sections of the book for people to figure out what actions they can take on a personal level to to be a part of the change. And so I think we really needed to end end this with a note of uh, optimism. Mm -hmm. And so I'll just share a very small paragraph of, of one of the ones that I thought was really interesting and thought provoking because um, it's a it's a tough it's a tough problem. Mm -hmm. So okay, here's here's one one tiny paragraph. The most thought provoking solution is to stop the use of plastic entirely. Now. What would that look like? Does that mean that we end capitalism and consumerism as we know it today? Do we go back to the 1940s ceramic pots and handwoven cotton clothing? Do we abandon our life-saving medical supplies and transportation options? NGOs and some scientists believe that the only way we reduce plastic pollution is to put a cap on plastic production. With most plastics used for packaging, at least removing as much of this as possible would be a start. Durable and life-saving plastics might be another story. How would we meet people's needs and get products to them without plastics? And so this concept is currently being piloted within cities by an organization called Perpetual Use, overcoming the burdens and exploring how to scale reuse to be inclusive and accessible. So imagine walking into a town where every packaging item, whether plastic or not, is continually reused, which is just, wow, I, mm. I'd love to see it. Yeah, I, I know. I, I love the way how we sort of questioned and, you know, provoke the reader to imagine this situation. And and I also want to add, we we have an episode talking to Ellie Moss of Perpetual. So if people uh, want to hear more about Perpetual, they can check out another episode um, of AquaThread as well. So I, I, I think that last chapter was definitely challenging and, and again, ask people to sort of imagine what could be different because we know this takes a, a systems change and we need to take this 
uh, approaches with a, a human rights lens as well. Um, Absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that we can't be the only ones with the solutions. I think it's great to have as many brains in the room as possible. So, exactly. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to turn the question around as well to see what was most challenging for you. I think for me, it was probably the, the time. I don't know if uh, <laughs> it's sort of a practical thing. Um, both of us were so busy. And so just looking at what I was doing and the fact that you were still working on your PhD, which was absolutely amazing, you know, and I, I tried to remember when I was doing that. And, um, but yeah, you, you navigated that beautifully. And so I was inspired to like, be like, I can, I can do this. I can carve out the time. Um, and, you know, we really just kind of snuck in these conversations whenever we could. We drafted individual chapters after these conversations, exchanged chapters. I know we even like got on calls and just like muted ourselves and said, like, we're going to write now. Um, so just I wanted right. to share a few of those things that that seemed to work. We worked in Google Docs so we could see each other's work and edits in real time. I mean, all of that helped me a lot. Um and I think, uh, you know, you said at the beginning we had to write a chapter for them to to look at. And probably what I found was sort of writing in this style at first. It, it, it the style doesn't didn't come naturally to me. And I think I got, I think I got better at it over the chapters that that I originally drafted. And so by the time I got to the policy chapter, that came out. The fastest for me and I wanted to read an excerpt from that chapter. Collecting plastic and paper bags since 1975, Heinz Schmidt Beckham of Germany holds the record for keeping 150,000 of them. But if you opened a cabinet drawer or pantry in your kitchen, how many plastic bags might you find? We use and try to keep and reuse so many plastic bags that companies make holders that stick to cabinet doors, organized drawers, other containers that bags can be squished into specifically to contain the multitude of plastic bags that seem never ending in our lives. While we make every attempt to reuse them, the uses do not typically keep up with the sheer quantity we can be given. Plastic bag use is estimated to range from billions to trillions per year, equaling about one to two million per minute the most ubiquitous consumer item in the world. Some people still recall a time without plastic bags. They were not invented until 1965. Use quickly spread when, in 1979, plastic bags held 80% of the bag market in Europe. In 1982, two of the biggest supermarket chains in the U.S., Safeway and Kroger, switched to plastic bags. By the end of the 80s, plastic bags had become the norm throughout the world. Besides the sheer overwhelming quantities, it didn't take long for people to see the downside of so many plastic bags. The first documented entangled plastic item after fishing gear was reported to be a plastic bag captured by a continuous plankton recorder off the north coast of Northwest Ireland in 1965. And the deepest litter ever found in the ocean was a plastic bag at the depths of the Mariana Trench. Plastic bags are challenging to recycle as they cannot be put into the curbside bin. They get tangled in the conveyor and screening systems at our material recovery facilities. They blow out of trash cans, trucks away from landfills easily, and clog drainage systems, causing flooding. 
No wonder the earliest and most frequently enacted plastic policies pertain to plastic bags. The first plastic bag ban in the world came from Bangladesh in 2002, recognizing the harm they were causing to the drainage systems in the country. The first tax on plastic bags was implemented in Denmark in 1994. It's estimated that Danes use about four single-use plastic bags a year, while people in the USA use 300 to 500. Other countries have followed these examples. As of July of 2018, uh, the United Nations Environment Program documented that out of 192 countries examined, 127 have enacted some form of policy to address plastic bags. So more stories behind other policies uh, are in the book. Um, so, Amari, at this point, are, are there any other excerpts or any other information about the book that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm still I know we wrote this, but I'm still dwelling on the 300 to 500 bags a year. I know, compared spot. to Denmark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, what? the proof's in the pudding. I think we could all, you know, go take a look and see average home home bags and the differences between different states. Mm -hmm. on policies with bags and mm -hmm. you'll, you'll see a story yep um but regarding other excerpts i think i what i want to do is kind of just go through how the book is broken down so you all can can see how you know the different types of topics that we're covering mm -hmm. so chapter one we've already got given a really great excerpt is a brief history of the invention of plastic and its rise in popularity and usage and then chapter two goes over how plastic is made the types of plastic that are in use and how much is currently being used and how that volume is actually growing with demand. And then chapter three, we'll go through managing plastic waste. So what do we do when we deem plastic, you know, no longer valuable, um, you know, or how do we do things other than throw it away in a landfill? Mm -hmm. And so how does our waste management compare in the U.S. to other countries? Um, and, the, and the kinds of complications we deal with for those processes. Chapter four is the discovery of plastic debris. So we know that plastic ends up in the environment. And so we want to talk about how it ends up um, on these shorelines and the oceans, because um, maybe we're not actually seeing people throw a, a, a can out of their window, which I have. Like a couple weeks ago, I saw that and I was really sad. Mm. Um, but, you know, there are other ways that we don't even realize are causing pollution in our environment and in, um, within even homes. And so um, we move from there to chapter five on chemicals in and associated with plastics. And this is meant to really complement the other chapter talking about how plastic is made mm -hmm. and why over time we the, the invention of plastic changed to incorporate additional chemicals mm -hmm. that were needed. And those chemicals are sometimes the reason why plastics are around for hundreds to thousands of years. Um, and then within chapter six, we talk about the environmental impacts of plastic. Uh, and so this is probably the meat and potatoes for someone, you know, maybe why someone might want to pick up the book because they want to know what is the harm caused to, you know, different wildlife, to climate change. Why do we now consider plastic pollution a planetary boundary threat, mm -hmm. which is always a big mouthful, uh, to even how plastic pollution and climate change are so interrelated and really need to be worked on collaboratively together. Chapter seven talks about plastic's impact on society. And so ways that we are personally impacted, whether that's human health, 
or environmental justice implications of the plastic life cycle. Chapter eight is the plastic policies. And so it talks about um, local, national, and global uh, government regulations that are currently in play or previously implemented and some of the pros and cons for each. And then we end off in chapter nine on alternatives and interventions for plastic. This is the optimism that we can have for addressing um, plastic pollution and all of us being a part of the solution. Yep. And um, within that, we also talk about some of the recommended reading lists um, within the back of the book. And so if you're looking for additional resources after, after this awesome book that we encourage you to buy, um, there's a great book called A Toxic Love Story or Plastic, A Toxic Love Story by Susan Frankel, uh, Garbology, Our Dirty Love Affair with Trash by Edward Humes, um, Pollution is Colonialism by Max Liberon, and then also Polluting Textiles, The Problem with Microfibers um, by Judith Weiss. Yeah, I mean, I think this book is, as we said, sort of a primer and a taste, and it's always nice to dig into these other books that offer a deeper dive into into various subjects that I think we touch on within this book. I, I'd like to add uh, another piece that people could look at. So because we had such an amazing experience writing this book, when I was invited recently just to write a short primer um, for the plastics, uh, the June special issue of One Earth, that's out now. Uh, I reached out to you so we could write this together. Um, and this also covers the entire life cycle. And as I said, is, is available now and is an even shorter read than the book. Um, so to, to wrap up today, Amari, if you don't mind, I would love to ask you the final question that we that we always ask our guests. So part of the reason we do bring people on the show is to hear different perspectives, of course. We know that systems will only change and adjust in an equitable way if we have representative perspectives and voices at the table. So we ask this similar question. Uh, in terms of plastic pollution, what voice do you think is either missing or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And as a second part to the question, how do we make that happen? So I think one area that I would love to see more amplification or, you know, their, their perspectives and their voices would be the younger generation of mm -hmm. kids and students. Mm -hmm. um, because just like climate change, plastic pollution is going to have generational impacts that will continue to be in severity with time. And so if we need to really give them a platform and an opportunity to advocate for their future welfare. And so I think ways that we can try to make this happen is to allow young voices to be present in the negotiations for even the Global Plastic Pollution Treaty. Um, social media in particular is like a swinging pendulum as far as risks and benefits go. But I do think that those are really great tools and methods for, for young um, young plastic pollution activists and advocates to have an opportunity to get to engage with the larger community. And so I think sharing their work, amplifying their work, um, in encouraging people to, to, to be a part of, you know, how do we do plastic pollution cleanups? How do we address upstream and downstream solutions collaboratively uh, is always going to be important. And who knows, maybe we need to work on a children's book for plastic pollution next to get the, you know, the next generation of 
first to fifth graders thinking about this and, and getting involved. Love that. I think you need to write that book, Amari. It would be amazing. Um, so please remind everyone where they can find our book now. Yes. So you can pre-order or you can purchase this book now on the MIT Press website. It's also available to order on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, uh, Penguin Random House, Bookshop.org, Indie House, Indigo, and Books A Million. Thank you so much, Amari, for all your dedication and work on this issue, for being such an amazing communicator, collaborator, including teaching me lots of things through this process as well. I'm so glad you reached out to me to join you on this book journey. Um, and I know there are many great things uh, to come in the future for you as well. Thank you, Jenna, especially for the mentorship, the laughter, you know, and the incredible brainstorms and overall support throughout this journey. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you again to all our listeners for taking time out of your day to join us on the Aqua Thread. <laughs>